Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Job, and you follow, as I read you, a portion of the book of Job in chapter 12. Job chapter 12, you find that, and we'll read the first, we're going to read the first 13 verses of Job chapter 12. You follow as I read. Here we go. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I, who called to God, and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will teach you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tests, tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding and length of days. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, um, nothing is so inevitable as is suffering. And uh, no book in all of human literature uh, addresses the subject of suffering with more integrity, with more candor, with more realism, with more honesty than does the book of Job. Perhaps one of the biggest factors in Job's suffering was the fact that he had to deal with these three counselors, his three friends, who all of whom uh, essentially gave him the same advice, gave him the same counsel. And what they said was, in essence, this, if somebody is suffering, then somebody must be doing something wrong. And they said that for 35 chapters. It's, it's what I'm calling an, uh, an approach to life, um, a, a, a philosophy, a, um, a, a, a religion. A religion of the cause and effect. Um, and Job fought them and their religion for the, for the majority of his book. And 10,000 years later, guys, we're still fighting it. We're still fighting the same kind of philosophy, the same kind of approach to life, the same kind of religion as um, that is very similar to that which you see coming out of the mouths of, of Job's three friends. For most modern Western people, like us, our approach to life is, is dominated by this, this watertight system of cause and effect. And it shows up in all kinds of ways. It, it um, cause and effect. It shows up. Uh, uh, for example, um, if a man has a heart attack, 
Well, that's, that's obviously because he's been, he's been working too hard or he eats too much beef. If, um, if a man um, loses his job, well, he's um, probably not working hard enough. Or if, if someone goes bankrupt, then uh, he obviously uh, hasn't been watching his investments close enough and he's gone to sleep at the wheel. Now, guys, those are just three of the myriads of mundane examples of this cause and effect religion or approach to life that so many people have. Well, if that happened, then here's the reason. If that's the result, then this is the cause. If that's the cause, then this is the effect. And Job has something to say about that, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, it's a stroke of biblical genius. And it is so true. He says it in verse 5. And what he says is basically this. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune. Is that not the truth? Now, now think with me, ladies and gentlemen. That contempt is the result of having a cause and effect religion. Um, it's a stroke of genius, guys. And because think, think, if if we're in prosperity, if we're is if we're one of those people in ease, if we're in a broad place in the road right now. Then, then the secret to our, our, our happy living seems so, so obvious. I mean, just eat less beef. And so anyone who's struggling, well, I mean, it's their own fault. If only he would do this or try that, he would be more like me. I mean, the idiot, doesn't he want to be more like me? So gang, if, if, if I bear the responsibility of all the bad that happens to me, then it is the direct corollary of that that I also bear responsibility for all of the good that happens to me. Simple, isn't it? Our whole outlook on life, guys, centers upon a theory of human causes. Do this. Get that. Put a nickel in, get a nickel's worth out. It's all so neat and so simple and so wrong. And and I think Job sees it as far more nefarious as just being wrong. Gang, that kind of a that kind of philosophy of life, cause and effect. It certainly um, influences how we react to suffering. Yes, but it also, more importantly, influences our whole religious thought, the whole way that we think of God. And Job seems to know that, and so he spends this portion of chapter twelve exposing the utter godlessness, yes, godlessness, of such a, an approach, of such a philosophy, of such a religion. And I, and I wish he had said more. 
But what little he does say is rock solid, ladies and gentlemen. And what he does in this little section of the book of Job is that he exposes the godlessness of a cause and effect approach to life or approach to religion. So how does he do that? How does he expose um, the godlessness of all of that? He does it in two ways. And I want you to take a look at the text with me. The first thing that he does is in verse 6. And ladies and gentlemen, verse 6 is a masterful piece of, of philosophical argument. Look at it. Verse 6 says, The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their own hand. Do you see what he's done? What, he, what Job is doing, what he's saying in essence is, to his three friends, he says, If cause and effect explain everything then why is the robber at peace? And then why is an idolater who who provokes God, how does he live in security? I mean, um, if if your philosophy of life is correct, then explain why it is that a robber, a thief, um, lives in peace. A robber's not supposed to live in peace. It's not supposed to happen. But if cause and effect is, is correct, then how do you explain his life? Or the, the life of an idolater? Do you see how he defines the idolater? He provokes God who bring their God in their hand. He's describing an idolater, ladies and gentlemen, somebody that totes their, their little God around in, their, in the palms, got a little handle on it, you know? He brings it with him. He totes it around in his own hand. They, they, those idolaters provoke God and they get away with it. Your system doesn't explain that. But not only does it not explain that, but, but the God of this system the God of the cause and effect approach to life is basically oneself. Because the God of the cause and effect religion is just as strong as I am. He's just as wise and no wiser than I am. And and, and all of the good that happens in my life is the result of of situations that I myself have created. Gang, the 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 20th century cleaned up this whole idea and they gave it a nice sounding name. They They called it humanism. That sounds nice. You know, I don't, I don't know whether you make a habit of going to um, um, high school graduations. I've, I've been to my share. I, you know, I had to go to three. I had three daughters. And then I go to friends from time to time. And I've spoken at a couple of high school graduations. But predictably, um, oh, I don't know, one out of six times, um, some high school valedictorian finds this piece of poetry that was written back in 1849. It was written by a man by the name of William Ernest Henley, who was born in England, and, uh, and he was crippled from childhood, and he was one of the world's first humanists. And he, and he wrote this piece uh, called Invictus. Maybe you studied it in school. I want to read it to you. It's brief. It's, um, it's a doozy. 
Listen to this. <laughs> Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Finally, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I bet you could finish the last line. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That was written by a man, ladies and gentlemen, who has a whole cause and effect understanding of life. And if I can paraphrase him just a little, in essence he says, I know how to produce the right results. You produce the right results with the right kind of effects. And I can do that because I am in charge. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're still with me. But Job's argument throughout this entire book is, is that there, is that his three friends approach him with a whole cause and effect explanation for his suffering. And his reply is in essence, there's no room for God in your in, in your equations. What Job is saying is that the cause and effect approach to his sufferings will not work. It doesn't explain what I'm experiencing. There's a ghost in the machine. There's a variable. There's a, there's a player. There's a first cause causer that is left out of this whole equation though his name might get mentioned from time to time, but Job insists that there is nothing that he can do about his suffering because it's the Lord's will that he, that, that's at stake here. But you see, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit into the, the, the philosophy, the religion of his three friends. But neither does a thief at peace. Or an idolater in security. Gang, that's how he's arguing here in verse 6. He opens up the chapter by saying, yeah, 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 you guys got all the answers. But let me explain a couple of things to you. Why is it that the robber lives in peace in his tent? Huh? Explain that with your simple cause and effect and explanation of life. What about the idolater? Huh? 
You see, my, my, my dear friends, he says to his three buddies, there's something missing in your equation. You've got it all figured out. It's all so simple and it's not. There's no room for God in your system. And, and your approach to life won't explain not only my sufferings, but it won't explain the thief living in, in peace either. Your approach to life leaves no room for God, nor does it leave any room for the gospel. Let me, let me tease that out a little bit. Listen, guys. Perhaps the very first admission of any believer, anybody who comes to Christ for the first time, is, is the admission of my personal powerlessness. Anybody who comes to Christ knows that he is powerless to help himself. Every Christian knows that. And so it's, it's, it's up to God to, to help him or, or he's simply not going to be helped. If God, my problem is my sin. And I'm, I'm powerless to address it. And if God doesn't address it, it won't be addressed. But that's not an admission that William Ernest Henley is very comfortable with. Powerlessness. As opposed to, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? Those are on different ends of the spectrum. And what those of us who possess the gospel need to say to Job's three friends, as Job does, you need to put down that God that you're carrying around with you And you need to face some hard facts. My friend, your divorce is not the problem. But the sin that led to your divorce, that's the problem. My friend, the the bankruptcy is not your problem. The problem is the sin that led to your bankruptcy. Oh, my friend, your DUI is, is is not the problem. The problem is the sin that led to the, to the DUI. And it's that sin that Mr. Henley has no solution for. As he goes on to promote, I am the captain of my own soul. Guys, the gospel in essence says there's a problem that we have. It's called sin. And if God doesn't do something about it, we'll be lost. But that's not a problem for Job's three friends. It's not a problem for Mr. Henley. It's not a problem for any humanist. It's not a problem for for anybody who has a cause and effect religion. Because they simply say, try harder. Be better. And that's what Job's friends tell him. Job, you're in a mess. You're in a mess. We see that you're in a mess and that you can get out of that mess if you just try harder. If you just be better, that is, be a nicer person, 
And if you'll just do the things that we tell you to do, then voila, you'll have the result that you want based on the causes attached to the desired result. It's godless, ladies and gentlemen. Guys, ultimately, all unbelief is idolatry. My friend, with all due respect, if you are here today outside of Jesus Christ, do you understand that you are an idolater? Because the God that you have is the God that you made, not the God that made you. I remember when Susie and I first heard the gospel. It was in our apartment in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And and, uh, this man came in and was talking to us about some stuff. and, And I remember in the coming days thinking that when that man came into my apartment that night, I already had a Savior. And my Savior was me. And if you're here outside of Jesus Christ this morning, ladies and gentlemen, I must tell you that your Savior, or you're trying to be your own Savior in some kind of self-salvation project, I am my own God, and I am hell-bent. I am determined on saving myself by my goodness. My goodness is the cause and my salvation will be the result. I am the causer. I am the one who produces the effect that I desire. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is godless. It's idolatry. Job's three buddies um, are some of those cause and effect folks. They, um, their counsel has no place in it for, for God. And you know, I run into people like that all the time who, um, who think, you know, if I've got a problem, a little counseling will fix what ails me. And you know, guys, I respect counselors and counseling, but any counselor worth his salt will tell you what David said in Psalm 60 is true. What David said is, the help of man is worthless. This is the way that Job says it in verse 13. He says, with God, our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding, and he alone can save me. Gang, anyone who knows the gospel knows that our condition is, humanly speaking, unfixable. I can't adjust this or tweak that or redirect myself over here. No, I'm bankrupt. I am spiritually bankrupt. And unless God saves me, I shan't be saved. Guess um, one of the good things about pain One of the good things about a time of trial is that that pain often convinces me 
that that master of my own fate business is a bunch of poppycock. It's foolishness. It's a lie. And what I really need is a Savior. I want to read you just five lines from a man by the name of Thomas Millar. I thought this was profound. I hope you will too. But he says this. Man has a will to power, but he has no real power. Any one of us could get leukemia tomorrow. That's How's that for being captain of your own soul? We're all just children trying to grow up. We think that means getting power. What it really means is learning to accept the powerlessness nature of the human condition. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is unthinkable for those who are convinced that the way this thing operates is the right kind of causes will produce the desired results. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is godless. There's a second way that Job exposes the godlessness of that approach. And he does it by pointing us to nature. Did you notice that? Beginning in verse 7 all the way um, uh, through 11 or so. Guys, before I start on this, I want to point this out. This is kind of a quick aside. If you know anything about the book of Job, you know that at the end of the book, God uses nature to straighten Job out. The only other place besides those last closing chapters where God's covenant name Yahweh is ever mentioned is right here in verse 9. The only other place in the book when it is associated once again with nature. Look at what Job says in verse 7. But ask the beast and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Listen, if you want to know the truth, then go talk to the fish. Sit down with a beast over a cup of coffee and he'll, he'll, he'll tell you who's on first and who isn't. Cause and effect religion has no room for God, but these animals, oh, says Job, they know better. The very earth itself Talk to the bushes. The very earth itself will draw you unmistakably to the the origin of it all. Look at verse 9. Who among all these does not know? That is, the bushes and the fish and the birds and the... Who among all those don't know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Do you know that? Guys... If you really want to know, if you really want to go to the heart of the matter, then just look around you. Did you create that? Gang, do you understand why evolution is so imperative for the unbelieving world? Because it gives them another explanation. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, look at the trees. Look at the beast and talk to them. 
You can philosophize all you want, but if your philosophies do not mesh with the nature of as, things as they are, then you will be ruined. Animals have more knowledge of God than some of us do. Mother Nature, it's God's first speech. Mother Nature is, is, is God's mother tongue. The, the, the psalmist says it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Paul says it too, maybe not as beautifully or as, or as poetically as did David, but listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Guys, it was only when men took that, that display of his divine power and divine nature, it's only when men took that, that very obvious and adequate display of his glory, and suppressed that truth in unrighteousness, that he exchanged the he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. He designed a religion that's called humanism. And at the center of it is a promotion of a godless man who is in charge of the causes and thus is in charge of the effects. And it's at that point, folks, that, that God was obliged to change his tactics. And he went on to deal with sin through, through another message, a cross. The cross is the pulpit in which God stood to preach his finest message. But the message of both of those, the message of the cross and the message of creation, is the same one that you find in Job chapter 10, chapter 12, verse 10, when Job says, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. You want the causer? There he is. And besides him, there is no other. Life outside of him, there is none. We are not the cause. But if we insist on being that, then the effect, the result, will be ruined. And if, my friend, 
if and when you come to see that, there is a place that we can all, we can all go. We go to a cross on which hangs the Savior of sinners. Gang, um, you know when we suffer, we really have to do, deal with two things. We have to deal with the pain of the suffering. And then we have to deal with the shock of the suffering. There's not much you can do about the pain except medicate it. But I'm here to tell you there's a lot that you can do about the shock. The shock of suffering comes from a view of life, an approach to life that is all wrong. It it, it is unwise. It's the view of the humanist. It's the view of the cause and effect religion. And it renders you a fool. If, if I, as a humanist, tells me, if I am the captain of my own soul and my life falls apart, then what I'm dealing with is something far more than shock. I'm dealing with disillusionment and despair. We're shocked that we're suffering and we say, well, you know, I'm living a good life. Why am I suffering? Do you see it? It's in that statement. I'm living a good life cause, but the effect doesn't correspond with my cause. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in that religion, I am the master of my own fate and the captain It's utter godlessness, ladies and gentlemen. And Job exposes it in chapter 12. By the way, Jesus lived perfectly. And he suffered incredibly. He suffered for my sin. And so, here's some more counsel other than the three friends. In the midst of your suffering, Run to Christ. It is only Christ that can redeem your suffering. And only Christ who can redeem your soul. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, use this portion of your word, if it's been properly handled, that you will teach us once again that, that we are not in charge that uh, we do not sit on a throne, that there is only one who is, and it is you. And for all of our rebellions, for all of our, for all of our indiscretions, for all of our sin, 
We thank you that you have indeed provided a Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. To him we run. Perhaps not understanding all that we're experiencing, but we know this. That in Christ, there is forgiveness of sin and there is safety. Outside of Christ, there is neither. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.